With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most listened to internet radio show in the nonprofit sector, dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. Guests on The Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And this is Ted Hart, and welcome to the latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Uh, We have a big show for you today. It is Tuesday, October 8, 2013, and as the announcer said, this is a live call-in show. So please plan on calling in for our page two expert at 347-324-3080. You also can join us over in the chat room, or you can email me today at tedhart at tedhart.com. As always here on The Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. First up here in page one news is uh, really quite exciting uh, for all of us here at the Nonprofit Coach. As you may know, uh, we host a discussion group over on LinkedIn, the People to People Fundraising LinkedIn group, and that group has now gone over 2,000. 494 members, so the big question is who is going to be number 2,500. If you are now already part of that discussion group, you can go over to the radio links today at tedhart.com. Just click on radio, and in those links today, you'll have a direct link to the People to People Fundraising LinkedIn group, or just go to linkedin.com and find our group. I hope you will join us and all of your thousands of colleagues uh, who participate in our LinkedIn group. Uh, next up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach comes to us from Google. Google Think Insights uh, has a study, and this is really a pretty impressive uh, work on the nonprofit path to donation. Uh, and one of the things I thought I would just point out to you is in the many data sets that they provide to you, 
Um, I'm guessing that a lot of my uh, guests today uh, really do not understand how powerful and how important your nonprofit website is. And if you're not keeping that up to date, if you are not modernizing your website to have the latest uh, provisions uh, for your donors, then you are really missing the boat because the digital resources that are most useful for donors, as reported in this research study, uh, is the nonprofit website. Next is search engine, uh, followed by, get this, consumer-generated online reviews. Uh, those are becoming far more important than I think most of us want to believe. Uh, and right up there next is family and friends. So just as we always say here on The Nonprofit Coach, people asking people, people connecting to other people who are not in your database it's one of the most powerful ways for you to be able to succeed online. So check out, and you can download the entire study, Nonprofit Path to Donations, uh, over in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Next up here on the Nonprofit Coach, once a month we have an opportunity to catch up with the fine folks over at CFRE. Ava Aldrich is here with us again. And Ava, thank you for bringing us this month's CFRE Minute. Thanks, Ted. It's always great to be here. What's going on over at CFRE? Well, we're having a great response to the last testing window of the year. And because of that, we are extending the application deadline until October 30th. So anyone news, and I know that the numbers are way up as well. We are doing quite well. We're very pleased. So people seem to be really responding to the things we're doing to reach out more, and um, we continue to just be thrilled by the strong support there is in the fundraising community for CFRE. Well, it is important, and, and as you know, here on the Nonprofit Coach, we are uh, big supporters not only of your work and that of CFRE, uh, but the uh, concept of being certified and standing voluntarily to a set of standards uh, that all of us can point to as representing a significant body of knowledge. Um, what else is new as we look forward uh, past this uh, extended deadline uh, for applications? Well, I think a couple things, Ted. Uh, on that subject of certification, there is going to be a session on that that I'll be taking part of or part in. Uh, during the uh, during Indiana University, University Lilly Family, Family School of Philanthropy Symposium on November 6th. So That's a very important sy- symposium. So this will be uh, an open dialogue and discussion about the future of certification or the current state of certification? Uh, certification and its role in professional development. Oh, terrific, terrific. And what will the outcome of that discussion be? Will there uh, be something that will be printed or shared with others? You know, I think probably the best place to look would be to connect up with the Indiana University uh, Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. I know they're active uh, in social media, and also uh, uh, there are various um, press releases through their website. Well, and, and they, you know, I think that just having this discussion, the fact that you'll be there, uh, will be undoubtedly a good learning moment. And I hope that. Uh, uh, perhaps uh, next month here on the CFRE Minute, you might uh, characterize soon after the uh, the, the uh, discussion at the uh, Lilly Center. Um, just share with us, you know, some of the insights that maybe you gained from that, or or that you think are significant for all of us to understand uh, as CFRE continues to grow and continues uh, to build its importance in our profession. I'll be happy to, do, be that, happy to do that, Ted. 
That's also, great. too, I will share with you that we have a, uh, a goal of Monday, November 4th for our new website. So I hope by the time I talk with you next, that will be up and uh, we'll be getting some good reactions to that. That will be something to celebrate. That's, I know you've been working on that for a number of months, and that's that sort of project always takes longer than you expect it to take. Uh, but I'm sure that the payoff uh, for all of us who rely on CFRE and for that information is going to be uh, quite significant. So uh, another thing to look forward to uh, next month uh, when you join us here on the Nonprofit Coach for the CFRE Minute, and that's Ava Aldrich, uh, CEO uh, of CFRE. Thank you for joining us again this month. My pleasure, Ted. My pleasure, Thanks for Ted. having me. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. We'll see you uh, here on the show next month, next here on Page One News. And, again, you can follow along at tedhart.com. Click on Radio Links. comes to us from HubSpot. Those of you who are trying to identify the utilization of Google Plus for businesses, um, they have a new ebook uh, available for you that's uh, free. Uh, nearly 50% of companies rate Google Plus as important for their businesses. Just last year, 15% of marketers acquired a customer from the social channel. Uh, the Google, Google Plus has attracted 500 million registered users. So how would you incorporate this in with all the other services that you are working on to, again, uh, follow the lead of the research study from Google that shows how important Social media is your website and the integration of both together. Next up here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, is uh, comes to us from the Connected Cause. And over at the Connected Cause, they are sharing with you seven things to think about before you implement a fundraising system. Now, for a lot of my listeners, my thought is that you probably already have a fundraising system. Uh, but these tips are so important, I really want to encourage you to go over to tedhart.com, click on radio links, uh, and read through this uh, study or this uh, these seven uh, tips. Uh, just remind yourself on are you appropriately data sharing, what about your security, some of the other topics uh, that uh, uh, that they bring up here. Because I think you know once we have a system, we sort of learn to live with it, and sometimes we're not on the cutting edge of the utilization of whatever system that you have. And it's always good to go back to basics and challenge yourself on whether or not you are getting the most out of the fundraising system uh, that you currently have. Uh, next up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach uh, uh, comes to us uh, uh, from the Fundraising Coach. Uh, and over at the Fundraising Coach, uh, Mark Pittman, who is always full of insights, uh, sharing with you uh, the secrets behind year-end fundraising fall appeals, um, how to write fundraise, uh, fundraising letters, um, other things that you can do in the period of time as you lead up to the holidays, some great tips from Mark Pittman and the fundraising coach over in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Uh, the last uh, piece that we have here uh, before we get to our page two expert uh, is just to uh, point out to you the new interactive online application for tax-exempt status in the United States. The IRS now has the IRS Form 1023 available in the online version uh, with its checklist and the ability to now apply online. So you can find that link over in the radio links, become accustomed to that. And if you're uh, uh, active in the nonprofit sector, undoubtedly someone has come to you asking, how can I get tax-exempt status? Now you can direct them to tedhart.com. In the radio links, you will find the interactive form from the IRS 
Form 1023. And with that, it's time to get on over to page two. Penelope Burke is, once again, our page two expert. She's an author, researcher, and mentor celebrated for some of the most important innovations in modern-day fundraising. In 2000, Penelope introduced the concept of donor-centered fundraising. Today, Penelope's groundbreaking research continues to gain international recognition for challenging long-standing but ineffective fundraising practices and showcasing evidence-based methods that raise more money. And one of the things I appreciate uh, most about uh, Penelope's work uh, is the evidence-based, data-based um, approach uh, to success. Uh, and uh, once again, welcome here to the nonprofit coach, Penelope Burke. Ted, hi. Ted, it's hi. so great to be so back, on your, back show. on your show. Well, I'm, I'm going to jump right ahead here, and I'm going to say congratulations, Penelope. It is a hard-fought battle uh, to be at the top of the all-time number one rated uh, guest on the nonprofit coach. We are now in our third year, uh, and you are number one. You edged out, wow. uh, believe it or not, uh, you edged out our, our now number two highest rated guest here on the nonprofit coach, Kay Sprinkle Grace, and you uh, edged her out by three listens, uh, three oh. downloads of our podcast. So uh, the two of you are neck and neck, uh, but you are, in fact, uh, now as of today, the number one. Uh, listen to podcast here on the Nonprofit Coach. So congratulations. Uh, thank you, and I can't uh, wait to can't contact Clay and lord it over. Exactly. And who knows, on that day she may be back at number one. So. An amazing, she's an amazing author and consultant and just a wonderful person. And she and I run into each other at conferences every once in a while. So I'm just totally thrilled. Well, the two of you are, are two of my favorite uh, professional colleagues. Uh, Kay, uh, each year, uh, makes uh, certain that uh, uh, she's here on the show because we invite her back every year. And now she is our perennial holiday show. She always does the uh, the Christmas show for us. As a matter of fact, she's already booked out the next couple of years uh, for the Christmas show. So the two of you being here on the show each year is very meaningful, obviously, uh, matters to my listeners because the two of you, whether uh, uh, number one or number two are just tied, you are at the top of your uh, professional colleagues, and we have really terrific guests always here on the Nonprofit Coach. And that means that what you have to say, the research that you're doing, the data that you draw matters and really is significant for my listeners. So let's let's get right into, um, again, welcome back. You've been on the show several times, every single time, very highly rated because of the data that you bring. So I don't want to take a lot of time. Bring us up to date with Cygnus Donor Research and where Penelope Burke is at. Um, first, um, I want uh, hats, hats off to donors who come, donors who come, come into our come studies into our because, because they didn't they say didn't such amazing, amazing thoughtful, thoughtful things. things. I have nothing I have to report. Nothing so, report. so uh, this, uh, year, this year, we, um, this uh, is our this fifth our consecutive year with the Cygnus Donor Survey, and this year 26,000 donors participated across North America, which is very exciting. 
My special objective of this year's study was to update the original donor-centered fundraising research that we published in the U.S. in 2003. And that was, as you mentioned in your introduction, the thing that I'm best known for. This philosophy was looking up to identify ways to retain donors longer because I've noticed this huge level of donor attrition so high, in fact, that 90% of donors who started to give were not actively contributing five campaigns later. And the early attrition rate, donors who gave a first gift and never gave a second, was 50% at the time I published donor-centered fundraising and is 65% now. So it's a really big issue. And donors have provided very clear direction on how to get donor attrition under control. So I'm happy to report well. When we first did our research, we found that donors wanted just three things. They wanted a prompt and really meaningful, a delightful-to-read thank-you letter. They wanted to know where their gifts were being put, you know, a program or a service, narrower in scope than the organization as a whole. And finally, before they were asked for another gift, they wanted a report on that program in measurable terms, you know, what progress has the organization made. And they said if they got those things, they would stay loyal and give more generously over time. The numbers were so high that we have spent the last 10 years doing additional research just to find out whether donors meant what they said. So I'm delighted to report that this year, we asked the 26,000 donors in our study the same questions we asked them 10 years ago. And we found that not only is this philosophy of donor-centered fundraising still the way to improve donor retention and raise higher level gifts, which of course makes you more profitable, but, it is, but the numbers are even higher. So, so in that, that intervening decade, the, the market has shifted even more in this direction than what you had identified a decade ago. It has. It so, has. For instance, so, for instance, um, donors uh, expressed a keen degree, degree of interest in donor recognition, donor recognition events, events where they could where go on-site on to an organization, organization learn, more learn more about the programs about the that they were running and how their donations helped. Help. Um, but... This year, 87% of donors who had attended an event in the last year or so said that the event itself was critical to their desire to give again. And they gave a lot of credit to the effort that fundraisers and volunteers go to to establish really interesting, informative events so that their donors' knowledge level rises and their desire to keep rises as well. Now, what you're talking about is, is, is a different kind of special event than a fundraising special event. It could have a fundraising raising uh, a component to it, but, but in a lot of ways what you're talking about is stewardship and impact reporting. 
Very much so. Very that's much exactly, so. That's exactly it. it. And as a matter and of fact, if donors are charged, charged an admission at the door, that's a reason that they never go back again. Talk to us about that because because you've learned you've learned a lot about this area. So help my listeners understand. Charging at the yes, door yes. is a negative to your overall fundraising. It is, and let you know if they're if they're running a fundraising event, then they should do so, you know, proudly and upfront. But if they're if they have sent an invitation to a donor for a recognition event, and then the donor is surprised when they get there that they're going to be charged to attend, that doesn't work for donors very well. Now, help help my listeners understand, because I know that they're over the last many years where the IRS has given some guidance in terms of the fair market value of events, how that affects the donor's um, deductibility. What should my listeners know about that? How does that factor into their decision to run these events without a charge um, because they are so vitally important to the decision-making process of donors? That is true. So if a not-for-profit was running a fundraising event that involved a gala dinner, then there is a value to that dinner, and the IRS will disallow a full 100% tax receipt benefit for the cost of attending the fundraising event. But, of course, for a donor recognition event, this is not a problem because you're not charging admission to your donors. And would the fair market value of that recognition need to somehow be reflected in a subsequent gift receding? Well, what will happen is if... If a donor pays a hundred dollars to attend a fundraising event, and it is deemed that the value of what they got at the event, you know, the dinner and the entertainment was worth fifty dollars, and they would still qualify for a tax benefit of fifty dollars. Right, but if it's purely recognition um, or information. Uh, and the donor subsequently makes a donation uh, because they were inspired. That that yes. recognition yes. event does not have to be uh, uh, no. No. reflected. No, and, no. Uh, and uh, that's uh, not the that's issue not at all. Issue because, at all. The because the whole reason for the, reason event, for the event was to inform, was to inform donors, donors not to make not money, to make per, money se. per se. Okay. You'll so be what else have you learned? Uh, I mean, this this oh, is significant. This is significant yeah, we, because. Yeah, we, it builds on the research that you've already done. It does. And when we look at something as straightforward as a thank you letter, for instance, there has been some change in donor opinion in the last decade. Ten years ago, donors, about 45% of donors said, if I could get a really prompt thank you letter, that makes me feel that the organization has an efficient administration and it adds to the reasons why I would want to give them again. Now what's happened between 10 years ago and now is that not-for-profits have become so efficient in sending out much more timely thank yous that now in this year's study, donors said if they don't get a timely thank you, then they would be less inclined to give to that organization again. So a new standard has been 
established by professional fundraisers, which I'd like to congratulate them for. But it also means with a new standard comes a new level of expectation from donors. Right. And what is that that expectation that you think is reasonable? Uh, donors say uh, donors if, say um, if um, uh, let's say it's a direct, direct mail direct campaign mail and donors send their gifts back to the mail, if they're holding they're their holding thank you letter within two weeks, weeks of the date they wrote the check, they, they consider that to be prompt. If okay. we're talking we're about talking a about major gift negotiated, negotiated face-to-face, anything smaller than a 48-hour turnaround would be considered to be deficient. Right, right, right. And, of course, to get a two-week turnaround means you've got to move it around pretty quickly internally because yep. you've got to get that out through the mail and get it in their hands. So they're not saying you mail That's it right. in two That's weeks, right. that you hold it for two weeks, but you, you have to be pretty darn efficient within your, your operation. Yes, you do. do. The other side of thank you letters is that timeliness timeliness was important, but the the really big thing is the content of the thank you letter. And we ask donors donors what what makes a thank you letter exceptional. And at the top of the list, almost 70% said it's a composition that makes the letter feel like it was written just for me. So they're very so they're aware very that aware they're that often one of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of donors giving at the same time. But you can still write a piece of correspondence that feels genuinely personal. So the dear friend letter is just well, not acceptable. That's a non-starter. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, you're, you're wasting your time. You are. You, you've brought up something actually quite important because donors want to be referred to by their name. And when you call them dear friend or dear supporter, they have one or two reactions. One is they feel it's presumptuous to be called their friend when they don't even know who's writing to them. And the second is uh, they think it's lazy. <laughs> Well, and, 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 you know, again, technology is, is part of, you know, where these expectations are coming from because in every other aspect, uh, your interaction is now far more personalized and the average donor is going to know that that is not high-level technology. Uh, and, in fact, you may not even be properly managed as a nonprofit if you cannot even manage my name. That is true. true. Um, uh, That's very true. true. Donors made comments on on, um, who signs the letter as well well, or who makes a thank you call call after after a donor makes a a gift. And And once again, again, they've they've focused in on board members, members, CEO, physicians in a hospital, people at the very top of a not-for-profit organization who seem to embody influence that professional fundraisers can't have simply because they're paid to raise money. So this is a great way to engage volunteers in something very concrete that actually makes money. In, in in thinking along those terms, what advice do you have maybe for small nonprofits who may feel that the resources aren't there? Well, if I can well, if add, I add a little more information, more information to, to our section, uh, section on, thank, on you calls, thank you calls, we asked uh, everyone, uh, in, the everyone study, in the study 
whether they had ever been called in the last, sometime in the last two years, by a not-for-profit who just wanted to thank them for the gift that they had just received. Without a solicitation, but a thank you. You know, we had, yeah, that's right. And about 4,000 of the donors in our study said, yes, they had received at least one of these calls in the last year or so. And it was very exciting because we asked them whether the calls themselves influenced donors to go on and make another gift somewhere down the road and make a larger gift. And 34% of the people who had uh, received the thank you call said that their subsequent gift was entirely or largely because they got that thank you call. So, so that's even more important than a thank you letter. Well, the thank you letter is pretty much compulsory because you have to transmit the IRS receipt for the gift in what in some way, and the thank you letter can be incredibly effective at retaining the interest of a donor if it's a really good letter. But in addition to the thank you letter, um, you can also uh, consider making calls to some of your donors to say thank you. And they're incredibly impact, impactful on both retention and future gift value. Well, that, that's the, the phrase I was going to, uh, to use is it seems like you've identified a, a new, as close as you can possibly manage, compulsory uh, component and that is that thank you call because the combination of the two seems very powerful to your ability to strengthen that relationship and potentially get another gift. It's extraordinarily powerful, powerful. and especially especially early early in the relationship, relationship, which is the the time that that fundraisers fundraisers may not focus on as much as they should should. because Because if we're losing 65% of donors donors after the first gift, gift, you know, they never come back and make a second. second. And yet, if great thank thank you letters letters and and timely thank you calls can add to donor retention, retention, then if donors who made just a first gift got a great letter letter and a nice call, call. it would certainly retain um, a lot more of them longer than we're currently experiencing. And that reflects back on the huge investment in budget and time that fundraisers give to acquire new donors. And they have to spend so much money because they're losing so many donors so early. So these strategies will help new donors settle into a relationship. And while it will raise more money from those new donors, it will also lessen the cost of donor acquisition. So there are two simultaneous benefits. Is this is this sort of um, part of a, an overall strategy to distinguish yourself from the competition? Well, it wasn't intentional. The intentional approach I made uh, the first time I ever surveyed donors on a large scale was about 15 years ago. And I was simply embarking on a straightforward exercise to determine whether uh, when donors have their names published in newsletter annual report, whether it impacts their giving or not. And the results of that research were so interesting interesting that we just just kept kept doing it. it. And 
personally, I have background in market research and in fundraising, which is a lucky combination. And so for me, it's just natural to conduct research with donors when I have questions that I want to answer. But over the past 15 years, it seems that I and my company, Cygnus, uh, is still the only company who's doing this consistently and that this is our primary work and not just sort of a secondary activity to boost our profile. Over in the radio links today, we have a copy uh, or have a link uh, directly to the Burke donor survey um, and the survey dates and deadlines for the sixth annual national survey investigating where donors are taking their philanthropy. Can you speak a little bit about that? The radio link is available at tedhart.com today in terms of who you're looking for and who should be participating. Definitely. Definitely. We were very fortunate this year to have more than 80 partners, partners. and And, uh, we welcome welcome any not-for-profit organization organization who has at least a thousand donors that they could reach out to by email and invite them into the study. So our study is anonymous for donors, and I can guarantee it's very interesting. We ask quite a lot of questions, but the donors hang in with us because we're talking about a subject that's incredibly important to them. And in consideration for the trouble that our not-for-profit partners go to to link us up with their donors, we provide them with a full 100-page report free of charge, and we run a private webinar to discuss the findings with our partners as well. So there are some nice benefits to partnering. So a partner basically – yeah, go ahead. If any of your listeners want to um, sign up as a partner for next year's study, um, they can follow your link. That will take them right to – um, uh, a page uh, worth, a page of information. worth of information. And the deadline for those who might be considering that is February 7th, 2014. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, so there's okay. lots of there's time to consider, time and, we, and provide, we provide through Amanda at our office, we provide lots of assistance to our partner. Um, so they're not, they're not out there just trying to figure things out for themselves. Terrific. Uh, today we have uh, Penelope Burke, uh, one of the foremost researchers in the nonprofit sector, uh, as our guest. Penelope, we're going to be right uh, back from the break. Uh, when we come back, uh, what I wanted to do is, is ask you, if you would, uh, to sort of taking what you've learned and the, the incredible research base that you have, and you've already spoken to this issue, but sort of highlight, AFP just released a, a study on September 30th that shows that charities are raising more money but still losing donors. You are way ahead of the curve at looking at why uh, there is donor attrition, what you need to do. And what I wanted to do is see if the, you can help bridge what, what they've learned in terms of rate, still raising more money but losing donors um, and how your research has been important to that. We'll be right back here on The Nonprofit Coach. Just a 
couple of uh, program notes here on the Nonprofit Coach. Of course, today we have Penelope Burke helping us understand what donors want, what they do, and what they think. Uh, next week, um, we do not have a live show, so it's a terrific opportunity for you to catch up on past podcasts, including the number one rated Penelope Burke podcast here on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, you can always go directly to tedhartradio.com or tedhart.com and listen to our most recent shows. All of those can be downloaded to your iPod or iPad and take us on the road with you and listen. Week after that, we come right back on October 22nd with Rob Mitchell and the Atlas of Giving 2013, another very popular show each year, uh, helping us with insight into where money is going uh, and uh, what donors um, are giving to. Uh, The week after that is, again, another podcast week, an opportunity to download those uh, shows coming right back with Linda Lysakowski and her new book, The Leaky Bucket, Fixing Fundraising on November 5th. So that's going to take you uh, through the next month here on the Nonprofit Coach, a couple of uh, opportunities to catch up with great podcasts, of of which we now have hundreds, uh, and uh, a couple of uh, live shows coming up uh, over the next month. Uh, So with that, we're going to head right back over to today's live show with Penelope Burke from Cygnus Donor Research. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here live with Penelope Burke. Penelope, um, so AFP has uh, found in in their recent uh, study that charities are raising more money but still losing donors. Uh, you've been studying this for quite some time. So looking at the two of the, uh, your, your research and their research, how do we bi- bridge that gap? Well, our research well, our completely research jives, jives with the AFP's very interesting, very interesting research. research. And the and key, the for, key us for us is knowing is why donors why stop, donors giving. stop because giving. Because donor attrition donor is going to continue to be very high, very high um, um, until we face the, the big issues that are causing that are donors, causing to, donors leave. to leave. So first of so all, donors all say donors that... Say that they, they understand, understand that if they give only, they once, give or only twice, once or twice, and especially, and especially if they give, if they modestly, give modestly, it's not really it's not going really to amount to anything, anything worthwhile for the charity for the that, they're that they're supporting. So they know so they, they need know to they stay need and keep giving long enough for their giving to be profitable. So I'm always keen then, when we every time we do a study, we ask how donors' execution of their philanthropy giving has changed over the last five years. And in the past couple of studies we conducted, donors say, now, the number one reason why donors stop giving is over-solicitation. And there are two definitions of over-solicitation. One is too many not-for-profits asking them to give. And the other is a single not-for-profit asking too often. Now, fundraisers can't do anything about the first thing. They can only control how often they solicit their donors. So focusing in on that one, we have asked donors, when you're thinking of only one not-for-profit, how many solicitations in a year is okay? And how many is too many? 
And Ted, and Ted how do you think they answer, answer that question statistically? I, I'm 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 on the edge of my seat, quite honestly, and I think most of my listeners are too. Because when you're putting together your annual giving calendar, this research is going to be vitally important to getting it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and you'd be amazed uh, at their answer. answer. I thought they I might thought say, they you, might know, say you know, two appeals would be okay, but three is too many, or something like that. But they actually don't give it a number. They say over solicitation means. Being asked to give again before I'm satisfied about what happened with the last year. And so, in fact, a feeling of being over-solicited is directly connected to feeling under-informed. So that balance between education, information, impact, and the solicitation, whereas for many charities, and, and I hope that this is changing, every single Communication is a solicitation. Yes, and that's yes, unfortunate. And that's unfortunate. Um, um, to put it mildly. Put it mildly. <laughs> because, because for organizations, for organizations that solicit a lot, a lot their, donors their donors soon begin soon to assume that everything they're communicating is actually an ask. And they start dumping emails before they're reading them. They throw out things that come in the mail before they open them. Uh, and so, uh, I know it's, this is not the intention of fundraisers, but in their in the pressure they are under to bring in more and more money as immediately as possible, it's easy to slip into a pattern of over-solicitation, and when you're there, your donors stop paying attention to you. It's pretty dangerous. It is, and and I'm just wondering, in in taking a look at the bigger picture, uh, if you have any insight into, I'm I'm wondering with this this whole issue of um, uh, raising more money but losing donors, is some of this maybe due to a conscious um, decision within organizations to focus more on major donors, uh, and that perhaps as an industry, uh, as a profession. Uh, fundraisers are doing a better job at major donors than they have in the past and are beginning to realize the true cost of acquisition and uh, the ability to maintain a relationship with smaller donors. Yes. I think you are right, and you've put it beautifully. I think when you look at the number of not-for-profits who are resourcing major gifts officers and opening up their ability to secure plan gifts, you particularly request, that number is rising every year. But the reason they are being successful is that donors are thinking along the same line. So if I go back to that question before about how your plan to be a change in the last five years. Our donors are now supporting the causes. So if I took the middle-aged donors in our study between the ages of 35 and 64, the largest number of those donors is supporting one to five causes a year. On the same question, when we look at donors 65 and older, there is there a big, is a the largest big, bulk the largest of donors, donors support over 10 causes, causes a year, and a lot of them support, over, support 20. over 20. So there so is a there huge is a philosophical, philosophical change, change in donors. donors. And what middle-aged donors, middle-aged donors are saying, donors are saying is, is 
is that they think giving a little bit of money to a lot of charities means that hardly any of their donation ends up on the ground doing the work that they want to fund. And to large a percentage goes into fundraising. So instead of giving $100 to 100 causes, they go down to five causes, and each one of them gets a much larger gift. And the net value of that gift is much bigger and can contribute to the organization's success. Penelope, I wonder if in these two cohorts – no, go ahead. Um, I was uh, I was just uh, going to add that I think that's I a think philosophically, philosophically smart, smart move on the part of donors, part of donors. But, it but it puts um, mass, um, mass marketing, marketing programs that depend on volume under threat. Right, and and they have been for quite some time because of postal costs and paper costs and things of that sort. But I, but I'm also wondering, and, and this is just uh, as you were saying what you were saying, I, I'm just wondering if this uh, a generational difference also has to do with the change in technology. And let, let me just uh, try this on for size. So you're saying that those who are a little bit uh, older, maybe our, our senior donors, 60-plus, uh, if you think of where they were in the generational cycle of modern-day fundraisers, those were the folks who principally received information about charities that they knew about, but also charities they didn't know about through direct mail. So they viewed that as informational, and they may have gotten information from a, what seems to us to be a large number of charities because they're supporting 10, 20 charities, which seems like an awful lot. But in an age before the Internet and you were getting direct information from charities, 20 was not a lot uh, for them because right. it was all That's that right. they had. Whereas now you come forward to maybe 30, 40 somethings, Internet age, uh, much more um, used to having information ready at their fingertips, going to websites, getting information. Their demand for information is much greater. Their reliance on direct mail is almost nil. As a matter of fact, it may be more of an, an annoyance uh, because they're much more self-serve uh, in that I I want impact. I want to know what's happening. I will get the information. I'll let you know what I want to give. So the the whole value proposition and expectation is linked to how they get information in the first place. It's is very, that much possible? very much linked. Uh, it's not only possible, it's exactly right. Because when we when we take our most senior donors, 65 and older, and divide that group by age, we look at the youngest of those donors who are between 65 and 75. And they had to they become had to internet, become savvy, internet savvy, savvy in the latter the part of their working years, years before they retired. And so their preference for electronic communication over print is very high, whereas donors over 75 are still in the print mode. The other thing we're finding is, which speaks to your very important point, is that the more independent the donor is, the more likely they are to follow through and give, and the larger their gift is. So when we follow two groups of donors, one who cooperates fully with, let's say, a direct mail appeal, reads the letter, writes the check, sends it back, and then when we look at a second group who gets the same direct mail appeal, 
But instead of just just responding to the letter, letter, they go on to the charity's website, website, they learn a few things, they spend time, they manage their their own learning. So by percentage, percentage, those donors who do their research are more likely to give, and their gift values compared with those who only responded to the letter and nothing else are much larger. Fascinating. And so so donors shouldn't be worried worried about about growing growing independence independence of their donors. donors. In fact, fact, their increasing independence independence leads to more generous and reliable giving. Thinking uh, thinking along these these lines, so the, the segmentation of donors now now we're looking at the over 65 as is, is also being segmented. I'm just wondering if um, maybe what you might refer to as sort of big box retail um, charities, big name charities, um, yeah. versus uh, perhaps smaller impactful boutique charities. Are the big box charities in peril for a future that is not going to uh, bring in that sort of large retail volume of direct mail reliable income, which the older generation was reliable, giving 10, 20 uh, charities and would would maybe a good percentage of those give every appeal or every other appeal. So you, you could run the numbers and you could look at a million mailings going out and, and, and be able to predict what's coming in whereas it's far less likely that you can predict on a major donor campaign where it's a smaller segment, much larger uh, gifts, uh, but requires much more of a personal approach. Is fundraising on the verge of changing dramatically as this older generation, which really sort of wrote the book for fundraising um, in the United States, especially on the large retail side, ages out? Well, fundraising should be always changing because the the system you and I are talking about, which is largely weighted in mass marketing with a small major planned gift operation on the side, um, is a system that was designed back in the 1950s and 60s, um, and it was right at the time. But... But uh, all the way all along, way along the, system the system should have adjusted, should have adjusted to, or, to, or bring to bring its major and planned gift program, gift program more, in more in balance with its direct with marketing, its marketing or, vice versa, or vice versa as the as signs the of signs changing donor, changing donor behavior, behavior were becoming were evident. evident. So I guess so in I guess some ways, some of the, some of the uh, as you call uh, them, you call big, them box big box are charities that, have, that have hundreds of thousands or millions of donors, you can be quite you dependent can be on that volume-based volume system, system, and it can be hard, hard, and I don't think I would even advocate it, to make a sudden huge move, but it is, but all of them can move more towards a balanced approach to fundraising, and they can start right now. What happens to, and I think most of my listeners would be able to relate to this, what happens to the traditional uh, giving pyramid? Um, are we looking at more of an interacting, interactive giving pillar where each of the component parts yeah. are much more yeah. in balance? 
than this general thought that you identify from a very large pool, create a relationship, and then have a very small pool at the top, that that's, that large base is no longer going to be as large. I think you're looking think at an isosceles trapezoid. There's the title of your next book, <laughs> The Donor Isosceles Trapezoid. <laughs> It'll never catch on because few people can say it and nobody can spell it. <laughs> right, exactly. But I think I think you're I think you're probably right. But you're seeing but it, this. It will mean in a practice, smaller base of donors. Yeah, it's a small base of donors. We're looking at we're looking at it. The future, the future because, because you may be familiar and your readers, uh, your listeners may be familiar with um, target analytics quarterly report. They measure the performance of uh, 30 million donors who give through direct marketing programs online, direct mail, and the like. And they have measured a 22% net decline in participation in these programs among donors over the past five years. So it's it's definitely, donors are still giving. I don't want your listeners to think that 22% fewer donors are giving. They're just not they're giving just that not way, giving that <laughs> and so um, and, you know they're but but they're in, going but in fact, if you go back to the AFP, if you just go back to the AFP study, though, a large number of them are not giving. So so we are literally losing donors out of the system. Those that we're keeping, and I think that makes your point about the the trapezoid, um, is that the we're getting much better at major gifts. We're focusing on them, and they are becoming even more important in an overall mature fundraising program. Well, that's interesting because the participation rate in philanthropy among Americans, except for the really tough years of the recent recession, is fairly stable. Ranging between 75 and 82% goes up a little higher in good times, down in bad. So people are giving. They're just giving in different ways. And uh, uh, But the big improvement in fundraising overall comes from a relatively small number of donors giving very generously. Right for the for the overall the sort of giving USA level um, uh, yes. reporting. So we we've only yeah. sadly have a few moments left, um, uh, about five minutes left. So um, help my listeners understand once again um, additional insights into your research because there's so much that you cover, so much that that you learn, and you've already on the show more than made this uh, a, a top listen uh, show. But um, help us understand maybe um, some other points that we don't want to miss as we're looking at year-end uh, fundraising. Well, we asked um, uh, a number of questions on communication, especially communicating measurable results, because 
75 percent of donors, and this was way beyond any other response they gave, said that the results achieved by not-for-profits they are supporting is the most important information they get, and the information they go seeking in newsletters, online, emails, annual reports is very important to them. However, however. In a parallel question or companion question, we asked if they read the communications that not-for-profits send them thoroughly, and only 6% said they do, a far larger number said they just skim them or or go looking for certain things. We wanted to know why they don't communications thoroughly, and they had um, three reasons that stood out. One was um, the appearance that the communication is too lengthy when they get it. So what happens when they get um, an eight-page newsletter is they set it aside thinking they'll pick it up later and read it, but then they never do. Um, so they, they Meanwhile, the charity has spent an enormous amount of time they putting have, that together. So, so what's the answer? Time and money wasted. And the answer is never send an email that's longer than um, one paragraph. Um, okay. Absolutely have a link uh, in the email to more information, but keep the email itself short. Never send anything in the mail that is longer than a single page. In a decent-sized font size, too. Um, so the second thing that donors pointed out is they tend not to read communications which on first glance appear to be uninteresting. This is a hard thing for fundraisers to tackle, but I'm going to give you an example of something that happened to me as a donor last year, which kind of brings it to light. I've been supporting a relatively small, under-the-radar charitable organization whose mission I like for about 10 years. And last year I got one of their newsletters, and I opened it up, and the headline of the newsletter was, Board of Directors Approves First Ever Strategic Plan. So I had two reactions. Number one, oh, my God, I've been supporting a non-strategic organization for 10 years. And number two, you know, they they used up the the top most important space in the newsletter for an administrative thing that is of not particular concern to donors. Or maybe now created more of a concern. Yeah, or they created a new one. And often the most exciting thing in a charity's newsletter is embedded inside on page six somewhere. But donors don't have the time to go searching for it. Because, finally, because the charity is thinking of it as their story as opposed to yes. telling the story of donors. Yeah, or what will appeal to donors because actually stories to donors. about donors are not, but are not particularly persuasive to other donors. Um, right, but, but stories I meant the impactful, yeah. right, impactful stories that, that say that what you did mattered. So we only have yeah. uh, less than uh, uh, two minutes left. How can my listeners reach out to you, Penelope? Uh, certainly, uh, we've got a lot of information on our website at cygresearch.com. 
And we do have a link and to that, uh, your website today in the radio links. That's great. So that's anyone great. And who would like to reach you. And my link is at Penelope Burke. That's terrific. For all of uh, our listeners here on the Nonprofit Coach, it's been Penelope Burke. Once again, a top uh, show here. We will be back live here on the Nonprofit Coach on October 22nd with Rob Mitchell and the Atlas of Giving. Penelope, thank you for get being our guest again here on the Nonprofit Coach. Ted, thank you for your continuing interest in our research. It's great stuff. I always tell everyone they can't live without it. 60 seconds. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.